I read recently the following story of a missionary with the Navigators who had followed God's leading to Uganda to pioneer a work in this country with the Navigators ministry. After a lot of prayer and discussion, he and his wife agreed that God was indeed leading them to uproot their family, young children, and to move to this particular field. So they did. They uprooted and flew into Kenya where he put his family into a a hotel and he rented a jeep to travel across the border into Uganda to find a place to live. He had no idea what he would encounter. He was pioneering this work and had no one waiting for him there. In fact, he told the author who wrote his story that I read just this past week that when he pulled into a village where he had planned to spend his first day, there were several young kids firing automatic weapons into the sky. And as he drove by, they pointed their weapons at him and just stared. Naturally, he began to wonder if this was God's plan after all for his life. After a long and tiring day of exploration, he pulled into a dingy, dimly lit hotel. He went inside and the clerk knew just enough English to tell him that they had one bed left. And so he procured that. He walked up two flights of stairs, opened a door, turned on the light, which was a naked bulb hanging by a wire in the middle of the room. And he noticed inside the room there were two beds. One was disheveled, having been slept in, and one was still made up. He said, I immediately realized I'm sharing this room with somebody else. And a chill kind of went down his spine. He said, I, I dropped to my knees and I blurted out, Lord, okay, I'm, it's been quite a day and I'm afraid. I'm in a country I don't know anything about. I'm in a culture that's totally unfamiliar to me. I have no idea who's sleeping in that bed next to mine. Please show me that you are in this move for my wife, my children, and myself. Just as I was finishing my prayer, the door flung open and there stood a six-foot, five-inch Ugandan man frowning down at me who then said in perfect British English, what are you doing in my room? Well, I'm with a Christian organization called the Navigators. The Navigators. He broke into a huge smile as he pulled from his pocket a worn-out scripture memory verse pack and pointed to the bottom of the packet. Look, the Navigators, Colorado Springs, Colorado. Are you from Colorado Springs, Colorado? And he said, yes, I am. And was I ever glad I was. That big Ugandan said to him, I have been praying for two years for someone from your organization to come to my country. And he threw his arms around me and picked me up and literally danced around the room with me laughing with joy. That Ugandan believer became my closest ally. From that day on, he helped us. He helped us find a place to live and settle my family. He assisted me with the language and eventually joined the board of the navigators for the country of Uganda. Isn't that great? Amen. And I couldn't help, I couldn't help but think of another faithful servant of God, a young man taken to a foreign country, only in this case against his will, but by the will of God. Because he would trust 
his Lord, no doubt, sent a lot of urgent prayers up in those early days and throughout. He became one of the greatest missionary pioneers to another kingdom in the history of mankind. His name is Daniel. And when we first met him, he was only 15 years old. He risked his life by refusing to eat in the royal cafeteria, even though he was in a foreign country and didn't know what to expect, and probably at those moments really praying hard. He refused to turn his back on his faith. His trust in the Lord became not only apparent to the royal staff and the king that he and his three friends quickly distinguished themselves, by the way, from all of the other Jewish exiles who had so quickly become little Babylonians. Before you know it, Daniel's in his late teens, graduating from the Royal Academy, given a government post in the inner core of the leadership of this kingdom. The next time we see him in action is in chapters 2 and 3, where Daniel, now in his early 30s, interprets a dream for Nebuchadnezzar. He prophesied in that interpretation the world kingdoms that would rule leading up to the kingdom of Christ on earth. Following that interpretation, Daniel is promoted to prime minister in the kingdom. And, 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 and you know, you're probably thinking, well, we know the story, we know the book, we read it, but, but stop. That was such an incredible, heady, meteoric rise to be a Jewish exile, now prime minister in 15 years. But Daniel didn't shelve his convictions or his faith along the way. In fact, as chapter 4 begins... This time the dream of Nebuchadnezzar is bad news and you discover that Daniel, now 50 years old, hasn't changed a bit. He's still faithful to God's word. He's still willing to tell the truth, even if it is bad news. And he even goes far enough to tell the king what you need to do is repent and follow after the God of Israel. His honesty at that moment could have cost him his life, certainly his career, but he told the truth. Just as he predicted, Nebuchadnezzar was touched by the hand of God. Nebuchadnezzar would lose his sanity for seven years until the grace of God opened his eyes to the gospel of Daniel, and he was delivered and converted. With that, chapter 5 opens, which is where we are today in our study. And you notice right away that you're introduced to a new king, Belshazzar. That's because chapter 5 is taking place some 30 years after chapter 4. I want to recommend you continue to write the timeline into the margin of your Bibles. It'll allow you to appreciate Daniel's testimony even more. If you haven't done that already, I'll I'll review it here one more time quickly. If you don't get it this time, you fail the quiz, okay? In chapter 1, you might go back there and just write somewhere around the margin of chapter 1 that Daniel is 15 years old. The Hebrew word used to describe he and his friends, yeladim, refers to youths between the ages of 13 and 17. Now, the events of chapters 2 and 3 take place 15 to 20 years later. You might write that in the margin somewhere. The events of chapter 4 take place 20 to 25 years later. That is after chapter 3. And now, finally, at the beginning of chapter 5, you could write the words into your margin... 30 years later, 30 years later, 
Bible scholars placed Daniel in his early 80s when chapter 5 takes place. So you're immediately introduced to this new king. And, and you notice, don't you, that Nebuchadnezzar has sort of vanished without a biblical trace. What happened uh, to him? Well, God is fast-forwarding the tape. He's shown us the beginning of the Babylonian empire under Nebuchadnezzar. And now some 70, 75 years later, he's going to show us the final act of the last Babylonian ruler And this final act is effectively a last meal. Before we get to that meal, let me introduce you to this young king, Belshazzar, or Belshazzar, if you're from North Carolina, that'll work just fine too. For decades, the liberals have used this king as exhibit A for why the book of Daniel is historically inaccurate. That is until the 1920s when archaeologists discovered enough to tell us all kinds of things about Belshazzar and his forefathers. Of course, the liberals apologized and converted to Christianity, which was wonderful to see. (laughs) Those discoveries revealed that Nebuchadnezzar's son, Amel Marduk, began to reign after his father's death. Nebuchadnezzar reigned 43 years. His son will reign only for about two years before he would be assassinated by his own brother-in-law. That assassin would reign for four years until he's killed. and His son, Labashi Marduk, takes over, but his son is only a little boy when he's put on the throne. And tragically, he is beaten to death by conspirators who place their choice on the throne of Babylon. And their choice was a man named Nabonidus. Nabonidus had married the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar and would reign until the end of the Babylonian kingdom. It's rather obvious that people kind of wanted a connection back to the great king Nebuchadnezzar. They wanted to go back to the glory days and he was given the crown. Nabonidus didn't really care for Babylon, didn't suit his health. and So he spent most of his reign in a palace he built in Arabia. But he named his son co-regent, co-king, and placed him on the throne in the capital city. And his son's name was Belshazzar. Belshazzar would have been about uh, 14 years of age when his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, died. He would have heard the stories of his grandfather's insanity. He would have heard the testimony of his conversion to the God of Israel. And that will come back to haunt him, by the way, and that's why I just dropped that into your memory bank. One more thing. I'm almost finished introducing this sermon, okay? Since Belshazzar was a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar's family, the son of Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, he could, in typical Oriental fashion, refer to Nebuchadnezzar as his father, a term that can simply denote forefather. We do the same thing in a spiritual sense. We talk about the faith of our what? Our fathers. We're referring to spiritual forefathers. Now we're going to be swept into a lavish banquet room where a feast is taking place. And none of them, catch this, I know you want to read ahead, but hang on, we're almost done with the introduction, that is. You need to know that 
this meal, they don't know it, will be their last meal. Nor do we know, by the way, when our last meal will be eaten. But we can prepare better, far better, I would trust, than Belshazzar. Now verse 1. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. And he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. It's a nice way of saying they were all getting drunk. Verse 2. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Now that information alone is alarming. For one thing, women didn't normally banquet with men. In the custom of the court, they would have their own separate banquet. You may remember the story in Esther of Vashti as it opens, how she is holding a banquet for the wives and the women, the concubines, a private banquet, while the king and his nobles got drunk next door. The presence of all of these women confirms in the minds of Old Testament historians that this was nothing less than a drunken orgy. We know from history now that Belshazzar was 36 years old when he threw this party. Some historians believe it was his birthday party. We do know he was decadent, he was idolatrous, he was immoral, he was impious, he was selfish. He was the king. We also know from excavations that this banquet room was enormous. Imagine seating a thousand plus wives, women, concubines. The banquet room was supported by stone pillars carved in the forms of elephants, their heads supporting the ceiling 20 feet high. The tables were fashioned in the form of horseshoes with all of the nobles and the leaders of Babylon, perhaps even along with their wives, seated there. Trained peacocks dressed in gold and silver harness drew miniature Uh, chariots loaded down with wine goblets around that banquet room. Trained waiters served the masses of people while girls danced on raised platforms. They were oblivious to the fact that within a matter of hours their kingdom would end and they would be dead. I couldn't help as I got into this scene and studied the historical setting, that this is a a perfect picture of lost humanity, isn't it? What a tragic picture of our own world today. Immoral, committed to the idols of their own making, addicted to pleasure and entertainment, self-centered, impious, rebellious, Drinking, feasting, fornicating, moving every day closer and closer to the cliff until they crash over the guardrail of their lives and into eternity they are swept. It's startling to think that there are 6,360 people on the planet 
who will die before I finish this sermon. 152,000 people will die before we pillow our heads tonight. 55 million people on the planet have already been swept into their eternal, unchanging, irreversible condition this year alone. At any given moment, the valley of the shadow of death looks like rush hour. Did any of them stop and think? I would doubt it. Here in Babylon, that maybe this meal will be my last. Well, Belshazzar's actually bored with the banquet. He's had so many of these things. He's been there and done that over and over again. He wants to make a statement. He kind of wants to juice the party by doing something dramatic. And here's what happens. Verse 3, repeat it again for emphasis. Notice, they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now at first glance, you might think Or have the idea that Belshazzar is just being, you know, blasphemous by drinking from temple vessels of the defeated God of Israel. And you'd be right, he is. But it's more than that. See, according to historical records and sources, we learn that under the leadership of King Cyrus, the emperor of the Medo-Persian Empire, the empire that will overthrow Babylon, according to the prediction of Daniel given to Nebuchadnezzar, Decades earlier. They have already surrounded Babylon. In fact, they have been camped around the walls for the past four months. Oh, Belshazzar is not only glorifying his gods of gold and silver, he's not only blaspheming the God of Israel, saying effectively, you're good for nothing but to hold my wine. He's going a great step further. Daniel will point out later that Belshazzar knew about his grandfather's insanity. He knew about his grandfather's conversion to God. He knew about the prediction that Babylon was prophesied to fall at the feet of Persia. And he's even now surrounded by the Persian army and still he spits in the face of God. He's effectively doing this. This is what I think of your prophecy. This is what I think about your prediction that I'm going to fall to the Medo-Persians who are even now surrounding the city. It isn't going to happen. I am unconquerable. That's what he's doing. That's what he's saying. Even though we also learned that the Babylonian army, or a portion of it, had already suffered defeat four miles away. All the nobles and all the military leaders and all the citizens with connections have raced and piled now into the capital city behind the security of their walls. Even still, Belshazzar is leading a thousand plus in this unanimous chanting down of the prediction of this defeated God 
of Israel, who dared suggest we would fall to Persia. He did have some reason to boast, according to the might of man. That outer wall was about 80 feet thick. That's about from the distance of that back wall to this pulpit. That's a thick wall. You're not going to use a battering ram on that wall. And if you happen to scale it, you drop down into an open area that was cleared and open, and you'd be confronted by another wall. Upon that wall, there were battlements some 300 feet high from which the soldiers could just pick off those that came over that first wall. These walls had not been breached for hundreds of years. They couldn't starve the citizens out either. The Euphrates River flowed through the city in different points, providing endless supplies of fish and fresh water. Huge iron gates had been crafted to sink down into the river, to the very riverbed at points where the river ran just under the city walls. Historians also inform us that the Babylonians at this point had already stocked enough grain to feed the entire city for 20 years. That's why when the Persians had surrounded the city for four months, Belshazzar and all of his nobles can afford to throw a birthday party. We've got nothing to fear. And now at the height of his arrogance, he calls for the vessels belonging to the God who dared predict his downfall. This is what I think of your prophecy and your prophet. Babylon will not fall to Persia. And then it happened. Verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts, his thoughts literally his conscience, alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. To this day, our culture borrows from this very text the phrase, the handwriting's on what? The wall to refer to unchangeably bad news. This is where it came from. This disembodied hand just appears and begins to write on the wall. We're told here, and I just read it, that this arrogant king loses all control. There's no bravado here. His hip joints went Slack. I'm not sure how your translation reads it, but it's the biblical way of saying he lost control of his bowels. His knees are shaking, his body trembling, and his conscience is painfully alarmed. Why? Because even though he can't read that writing, he knows what he's been drinking out of and something supernatural is happening and I'm going to be able to connect some of the dots Verse 7, he literally screams for the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. He pleads, that is, with the wise men of Babylon, tell me what this means. Of course, they can't do it. They fail again. I don't know why these guys are on the payroll. They never get the dreams right. They never can do it. 
And that's because the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are spiritually discerned. These messages are from God. It's going to take someone in tune with the Spirit of God to be able to interpret the meaning of the words. 1 Corinthians 2.14. The queen appears next. More than likely the queen mother. This would be Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, the mother of Belshazzar. Evidently, she's informed of the commotion and she strides into the banquet room and you sense about her a dignity and a strength. I, I found it interesting that she wasn't in there to begin with. Did you notice that? Judging from her testimony about Daniel and her description, she's probably a believer herself in the God of Israel like her father before her. She says in verse 11, look there, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. By the way, these two phrases can be translated. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of God, capital G. Who has in him wisdom like the wisdom of God, capital G. This translation requires an interpretive decision on the part of the translator, and most assume she's not a believer, and they translate it in that manner. I believe she was a disciple of Daniel's faith. And and the reason I do is, given the fact that she's avoided this drunken party to begin with, given the fact that now she introduces and speaks of Daniel with the highest respect, and given the fact that she refers to him as Daniel, his Hebrew name. Notice verse 12. He has an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, solving of difficult problems were found in this, what? Who? Daniel. It's his Hebrew name. He hadn't been called that for 60 years. You remember the king named him Belteshazzar? Well, get this. Forget that pagan name. Let Daniel now be summoned, and notice, and he will, not he might, he will... Declare the interpretation. I'd love to know just a little bit more about this remarkable woman and a testimony that to me is so clear. And you know what she's doing? She's pulling Daniel out of retirement and introducing him to this king. Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, tells us that the king didn't want to see Daniel and that she literally begged him And he finally agreed. Before we go any further, isn't it interesting that even when someone comes in contact with an unexplainable supernatural moment, they'd rather get an explanation from all the other pagans than ask somebody who knows the God of Israel? They'll go all around the world with their speculations. And you're just standing there saying, if you just ask me, I know exactly what's going on because the Bible addresses that issue. That's what the king does. Asks advice from all the pagans, doesn't want advice from this Jewish prophet. And finally he says, all right, none of these guys know. Bring them over. In fact, when Daniel finally arrives and enters the banquet room, the king says in verse 13, Are you that Daniel who was one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Why ask? He already knew that. Because he's not asking. 
One Old Testament scholar pointed out that you can actually translate these words indicatively. Belshazzar actually says it this way. So, you're Daniel. Oh, you're Daniel. One of the exiles that my father brought over from that defeated kingdom. That's who you... Oh, you're him. I've heard of you. You can hear the sarcasm and the spite, can't you, when interpreted in this manner, which is what he was saying. But I tell you what, Daniel, if you can indeed interpret this dream, or I should say these words, verse 16, I'll clothe you with purple. That was the garment of royalty. Nobody else could afford it. I'll put a necklace of gold around your neck. This was a special chain given only by the king to special citizens. They wore it proudly. And third, I'll make you the third ruler in the kingdom. Why the third? Because Nabonidus was first in Arabia. His son, the co-regent in Babylon, was second. So all he could offer Daniel, which wasn't a really bad job after all, was number three. I love Daniel's answer, verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself. Or give your rewards to someone else. (laughs) Can you just see white-haired, 81-year-old Daniel standing in the midst of a thousand nobles in front of the king? You could hear a pin drop, except at that point when everybody gasped. Because Daniel just turned down what the nobles could only dream of. You don't turn the king down anyway. And he's treating this stuff like they're trinkets. Why? Because Daniel knew what was coming. And by the way, keep in mind, he had no personal guarantee from God that he would survive that night. If Babylon dies, I believe Daniel probably assumed he'd die with it. He's now 81. He's no longer serving in the palace. More importantly, though, he's telling the king, look, I I may be 81, but... I still can't be bought. Keep your stuff. I don't need your necklace or the purple robe. And give that to somebody else. You see, he has an eternal perspective. Dear friends, when you are eating your last meal, it doesn't really matter what you're wearing. When you're eating your last meal, it doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank or the jewelry around your neck or the title underneath your name on a piece of plastic stuck on a door somewhere. None of that stuff matters an hour or two before you die. And they will. Daniel will survive And he doesn't interpret the message on the wall right away anyway. Would you notice here that what he does first is preach another message? This guy, I tell you what, can't wait to meet him. He could easily slip in and here's what the words mean, dot, 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 your toast, and leave. (laughs) What he does instead is he he stops and he says, not so fast, and he preaches a message. 
not only to the nobility of Babylon, but to this 36-year-old king. All I'm going to do is simply read the sermon manuscript. It's fairly self-explanatory, beginning in verse 18. O king, the Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father, Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him, whomever he wished he killed and whomever he wished he spared alive, and whomever he wished he elevated and whomever he wished he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, everybody knew who Daniel was talking about, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts. And his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart Note this, even though you knew all this, and now I think he's pointing, even though you knew all this, nobody's breathing. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and now they brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. You've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, they don't hear or understand. But the God, note this reference, in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways, you've not glorified. Then the palm, literally, the palm of the hand representing him in whose life breath of your life is held. He delivered this inscription, and here it is written out. Mene, mene, tekel, upharsin. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, You have been weighed on the scales and found deficient, wanting, lacking. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and Persians. End of sermon. Then Belshazzar gave orders. And they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. What is Belshazzar doing? I'll tell you what he's doing. He's defying everything Daniel just said. It'll never happen. Okay, I can't explain that disembodied hand part. But I've had time now to clean up. Probably cleaned up Probably change clothes. I've thought about it. We're not going to be overthrown, and I'm going to promote you, Daniel. I need a third guy in the kingdom. Look, we're surrounded by a wall 80 feet thick. We have fresh water and 
and, and, and food for 20 years or more. Cyrus has been camped out there for four months. Cyrus, you know, what does he know? He can't get in through these gates that go down to the bottom of the Euphrates River. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to buy all that stuff about your God who holds my life in his hand. I don't believe it. Nice try. Drink up, boys. Let's get the band going again. Let's get this party on the road. Daniel, by the way, whether you wondered or not, enjoy your purple robe and gold necklace. Take it and just get out of here. Herodotus informs us, who was a historian living during the Babylonian kingdom, that the engineers of the Persian army had found a solution. That night they diverted the Euphrates River into an old channel and lowered the water level of the river, which was now at points just below their waists, and the soldiers waded under cover of darkness right through the waterways in those walls at those points where the Babylonians in their overconfidence had not even bothered lowering the gates. He wrote that the, these Persian soldiers rushed to the palace. Herodotus said that when they arrived, dancing and reveling was taking place. In other words, the party started back up as soon as Daniel walked out. Soldiers burst into the banquet room, which conveniently, by the way, now held every noble person, every political leader, every military general in one room. And with one brief massacre, the entire leadership of Babylon could be put to death. That's what happened. The Bible records it fairly simply. Verse 30 says, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. And the kingdom of Babylon is no more. Let me close our study with three concise statements that translate all the way from Babylon to every kingdom and every nation and every individual person alive. Number one, God's rule may be invisible, but he still rules. Paul preached the same thing to the proud Greeks living in Athens in Acts 17. He said, look, God has appointed the length of a nation's existence. He knows how long it's going to even be around. And he's even appointed their borders He knows how much land they will possess. God established the nations, Paul preached, so that they might seek after him. He designs nations so that people can recognize the need for a true leader and look to God. The nation that is in deep trouble is a nation that, instead of seeking him, excludes him ignores him, patronizes him, relegates him to the sidelines. 
which our own nation has been doing for more than a hundred years. But don't be fooled. God still rules. Number two, God's judgments may be delayed, but he still judges. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, what? The judgment. Job, in his wisdom, said, Do you not know that the triumphing of the wicked is short? And the joy of the godless, momentary, though his loftiness reaches the heavens and his head touches the clouds, he perishes. And people say, where is he now? Which is exactly what people are going to say about you and me. We used to know that guy. wonder where he is now. We lost sight of him. We will be in eternity. Belshazzar, you're going to be here today and gone tomorrow. The handwriting's on the wall. Judgment is coming. You have another opportunity here before the sword falls to repent. Follow after the God of your father, Nebuchadnezzar, and like him, turn your heart toward the God of Israel while you still have breath left. And Belshazzar effectively said, Nah, I'd rather get on with the party. Number three, God's offer may be ignored, but He still offers. If you have breath in your lungs today, the offer stands. But if you don't receive the offer of forgiveness and salvation while you're alive and breathing, when you take your last breath, it will be forever too late. Eternity is irreversible and unchangeable. And I'm not trying to be dramatic, but your Sunday dinner today, keep in mind, just might be your last meal. We'll pray if you'd bow your heads for just a moment. If we can help you in any way spiritually, let me tell you, we're here. If you're ready to ask, what does God say about my soul? What does God say about my sin? What does His Word reveal? It will be great joy and delight to our hearts to take you to the Word. Frankly, I would not lift a fork to my mouth today unless I knew that my reservation has already been set by the grace of God in my life through salvation in Christ alone today. Father, thank you for the truthfulness of your word. Thank you for the caricature of a, of a young man. So tragic. So obstinate so committed to sin that he partied while the enemy rushed in and death found him. Father, we have as a company of believers, and I trust everyone in here is, or shortly will be, thank you that your hand has moved already on our behalf 
For when we were born again by faith in Christ, your hand wrote our name into the Lamb's book of life. Interpreted, it means heaven is ours. Forgiveness has been granted. We have been saved. When we've come today to worship you, and what glorious worship and song and fellowship and the word, thank you. We today are about to leave and uh, go back out into a world that uh, is partying away while death rushes toward them. Cause us to be clear, distinctive testimonies to the people you bring into our lives. Help us to be alert, to be ready to give an answer of the hope that is within us. And again, thank you for collective opportunities like these to worship you. Sing with me. Oh, come let us.